Your art was the prettiest art of all the art. Thank you. Rouse up, O oh young men of the New Age. Set your foreheads against the ignorant hirelings. For we have hirelings in the camp, the court, and the university who would, if they could, forever depress mental and prolong corporeal war. Painters, I call on you, sculptors, architects, suffer not the fashionable fools to, to depress your powers by the prices they pretend to give for contemptible works or the expensive advertising boasts that they make for such works. And yada, 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 yada. That's, uh, that's William Steve, Blake. Steve Jobs, circa 2009. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is uh, the preface for Milton. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, one of Blake's later, more apocalyptic epic works and uh, gives you a flavor of his energy and why he's known as a revolutionary and a prophetic dude. And also a little taste of why uh, he was not successful by any relative means within his lifetime. He uh, did manage to get a few things published but for the most part, he was unknown, unappreciated until after his death, he was you know, discovered and more widely circulated. And that's because he was, uh, he was set against the commercialism of his time. He refused to market or advertise any of his stuff. And because his method of producing poetry was a little bit crazy and, um, and, and his method of producing art wasn't really not amenable to uh, the capitalism and the, the mode of production. That was well in swing at that time. Um, but I'll get into that a little more later. I, I wanted to warm up. <clears throat> this, this may be breaking the flow a little bit, but I wanted to warm up with a little Instagram art. Um, mm -hmm. and, and this may be a regular thing. I like to keep a tab on Instagram art. There's some great, you can view some great art on Instagram. You can also view some terrible stuff. <laughs> so, uh, this is my favorite dummy. We'll get back to him. This is all the same guy, or are these different? No, people? the uh, the this one is different. So, Paul, mm -hmm. describe what you're seeing here. This is this is just a, a post I saw on Instagram. This is a photorealistic drawing of Hermione Granger, um, what with uh, very clear indication that the one on the left is a drawing. And the other one is the real image that it's based off of. So you're, uh, I did a double take. I thought, I could, that can't possibly be a drawing. Um, these could be tracings. Um, <laughs> yeah. A pretty, pretty good photorealism. I mean, never gets old, right? Yeah. I can't tell if it's digital. It says pencil artworks. Right. I, it, I always laugh when I see this sort of thing because it's like when you set your drawing against the real thing in this explicit way, and the goal is for them to be identical, virtually indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Don't you have the realization of, oh, shit, I just wasted 20 hours because <laughs> now I just, I, I ended up with nothing new. That, like, I, I well, could have just printed this out. As evidenced by the 4,644 4, likes, uh, I think not, Ben. Um, that's what it produced is 4,644 yeah. likes. Good point. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Here's another okay. one. Okay. Please describe this to the listeners. We have, um, I don't know where to start. Uh, we have a, a lady in a, in a really kind of high, uh, skimpy dress here who's painting 
some sort of surrealist interpretation of uh, Tom Hardy's Bane from The Dark Knight Rises, which, I mean, but, has she been reading my diary? This is what I've been looking for uh, out of my art for a long time. Yeah. And where is she? Uh, next to a pool for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of my favorite accounts. It's called Artwork in Studio. And mm-hmm. it's, it, you know, they just repost artist stuff, which there's a lot of accounts like this. But for some reason, this one in particular, it's always like hot young ladies posing right. with their artwork. Mm-hmm. And I can picture them like in their California homes and their husband is like a sports manager or something. Mm-hmm. And so this whole, almost this whole thing is like just ladies posing in yoga pants with their paintings. It's, it's really inexplicable. I don't, I don't understand what it's getting at. Um, so I'll be drawing on them frequently if we keep up this exercise. <laughs> okay. Sure. Yeah, can please you, do. Can you describe this one? Uh, we basically just have a sort of uh, 2013 era Instagram filter applied to a picture of a canvas and an easel in somebody's apartment kitchen, I guess. Yeah, and then um, read the the comment that oh right yeah the the caption yeah the quote it might not be an ace i have up my sleeve but i have something that's been speaking to me or should i say someone powerful question mark stay tuned (laughs) Ooh, who could he be talking about (laughs) yeah actually that's a great segue back to blake um Mm -hmm. i will i will just read this i don't know it's kind of mean but i'll read this guy's bio (laughs) jesus Jesus painting commissions, art, orthopedic (laughs) surgery, fishing, camping, Chicago Cubs, photography, cosmology, ancient monuments, and my family. In that order. Yep. Um, He's a renaissance man, man. Don't you get it? Yep. Um, I will leave my favorite uh, dumb guy artist that I I always check on for next time. Um, Okay. Because I think that was a good intro, and... Like I said, good segue to Blake, because um, when I pitched this to Paul, I was like, do you have any prejudices against William Blake? And I think he said, no, he's, he's badass or something like that. Right. Yeah, he's a baller. Um, yep. For sure. Yeah. And I, th- I can understand why you asked that question, because the, the pictures that you just pointed out, especially the, the canvas one with the, um, with the caption about waiting for the muse... Yep. Um, is probably, you know, that's, Blake is probably the, I want to, not the genesis, but is probably the most easily parodied, um, and is probably, I I don't want to skip ahead or or get in your way here, but I can understand why you would think, or you could ask, is is Blake kind of a hack to some people? But Mm -hmm. the answer, in my experience, is no. Um, So, go ahead. No, yeah, that, that's exactly it, is because in, in 2020, you would easily reduce him to, okay, he's doing these kind of um, quasi-mythical uh, like reinterpretations of the Bible and illustrating them. He illustrated the book of Job. He illustrated Milton and Dante. And mm-hmm. um, it, it's sort of like, you know, art as in service of, uh, of this mythology and going in a pre-modern direction. Um, mm-hmm. and what I, so my background personally, like I <clears throat> had zero knowledge of Blake cause I had zero knowledge of any of the literary side of this. And 
I can remember in middle school reading Tiger. That, that, mm-hmm. that is about it. And f- for the record, throughout middle school and, and high school, up until probably until I turned like, I don't know, 25, I was completely unable to read anything of that literary caliber. Like, I, I did, <laughs> did not understand it at all. Like, and I've speci- I, find, I find that hard to believe. It's, I, I don't know about that. It's very true. And now I even think like a principal truth about myself is that I'm a pretty slow reader and a pretty slow comprehender. Mm. So like reading plays like Shakespeare plays, I, I could not understand a single line. Um, <laughs> I, I remember once, once I, I ended up guessing right about that Jack London thing about a wolf right I, okay. I I just kind of guess like this is a this is about like the spirit of wildness or something and got a decent guess guessing right like on a paper or something yeah I guessed right mm-hmm. and I got a decent grade that was the only time <laughs> that was the only time I was ever given any indication that I was tracking at all and again it was a guess but I remember in reading the tiger which listeners so this may be where you where you can sync up with me is if you have any exposure to Blake, it probably is reading in middle school Tiger. My, the level I was at personally was, I think Tiger is like a, the animal Tiger because it's spelled, it's spelled with a Y. So I really wasn't sure. Like, is he talking about a tiger, the animal? I think he is. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And, and he is. So Yeah, he is. <laughs> Fear not. Yeah. Um, your your first instinct is correct. Or, or is he talking about Tigger from Winnie the Pooh? That could be another mistake that people could make. Or um, or is he? He's talking about God and questioning questioning in a rather uh, provocative and heretical way uh, the nature of God and whether God has guilt and blood on his hands for creating both right. this malicious <clears throat> machine of death alongside mm-hmm. the peaceful lamb. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, despite knowing very little, even the tiger embodies some of Blake's major themes, which is mm-hmm. contraries or dialectical opposites. That in one life, one universe, you have this tiger, which is a symbol of uh, just senseless animal violence. And then on the other other hand, in the opposite book, The Songs of Innocence, the symbol of the lamb, which is representing Jesus and representing grace and mercy and kindness. Um, and yet you have one God unifying those, creating both um, the both the horror and the beauty of existence um, mm-hmm. by way of introduction. Um, so, yeah, William Blake, if you haven't heard of him, is uh, probably first and foremost known as a poet, like I said, but really was a poet and artist. Every Every line of poetry that he ever wrote, um, with the exception of some his, of his early stuff, like literally from his adolescence, was created with pictures, was illustrated uh, in a total vision where he would hand letter poetry and then illuminate it with his artwork. So he was a poet and printmaker. He didn't have a lick of formal education. Um, he was trained as... He, he basically had a tradesman's education as a printmaker, and he was actually pretty well trained and successful in that regard, um, in that, uh, you know, he was a successful engraver. He had his own engraving business. But as a poet, and in, in the sense of literature, where he's probably most highly regarded, 
He had no formal schooling. Um, and uh, in both regards, as, as a painter and, or not a painter, sorry, as a poet and a printmaker, n like I said, not successful within his lifetime. Um, part of that, like I said, is uh, due to the fact that he had this all-encompassing all uh, vision of his work um, where he went to the roots of everything, went to the roots of the mode of production and did things differently in that none of his poetry did he want set in normal typeset uh, printing. You know, he didn't want it in plain typography. He hand-lettered it all and printed this stuff all by himself. He did no advertising for it. Um, and all the net result of all that is that he was, you know, obscure within his own lifetime, uh, despite the fact that he did he did want to have an audience um, just because of his quirkiness and his um, need to be so pure in his method. Um, he, he really never got that until after his death. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so we would like to talk about Blake from a couple couple different angles. Paul definitely understands more from the literary perspective, but this, you know, we're talking about art, so we're going to be talking about him as an artist. Mm -hmm. And then we'll be using as a guide um, someone, I think, who really gets at his unique theological angle, which is Thomas J.J. Altizer, which I will get into later. Like I said, um, William Blake does have uh, theology as the content of his work, but he is a radical and a heretic. Um, and therefore does not f really fit into any of the normal molds. So I think it's really fair to find um, someone who understands him on, on his own terms, who's going to take his the theological content seriously, uh, but, but then again is not going to just like try and appropriate him into Christendom. Um, mm -hmm. Any other uh, comments from you just about your background or uh, first thoughts about Blake? Um, it's been a while for me with Blake, so I just kind of picked him up in the last few weeks to prepare for this. Um, and yeah, I had always kind of known that he was of all those of all those dudes, uh, Wordsworth, Keats, Shelley, Byron, uh, Blake. Then maybe leaving somebody else. Um, he was the most compelling to me, and this was in part because uh, my professor in that class at the Christian College, when I went where I went to. He was, uh, he had a rich knowledge of Blake, but was not allowed to talk about him. Like he, he, I mean, he would have been fine, but you could tell that he was very nervous to talk at our Christian college openly about the, the vision and prophecy and theology of William Blake, because uh, he could have easily, easily been deemed, uh, especially by uh, a bunch of 20-year-old English majors, a heretic. Um, and at the time, that was, ooh, that was so scary. Um, and now it's like, oh, that's, this is what I'm truly interested in, if there's any, uh, anything to, to, you know, be extricated from the, uh, from that period. Extricated is not a word, I don't believe. Um, sure it is ex excavated from that period yeah yep definitely yeah I, I think uh, that sums it up pretty well uh, there is well I'll, I'll save it for when we get into Altizer but there's a radical voice a prophetic voice here the content 
uh, that comes from the content of Blake's work that is so interesting, um, but it is suppressed on both sides from the church who say could work with him from the inside and then from uh, whatever the opposite of that is, just from the secular, whatever that means, uh, literature and art world. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of gave gave us, a, I told you to, you know, look through his the uh, reproduction of his prints and flip around, uh, refresh yourself with just his writings. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, but I also gave us the assignment of reading Intro to Heaven, or excuse me, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell uh, in uh, the closest reading. So we'll, we'll kind of talk through that because I think it's a good segue into a lot of his work. So um, The Tiger uh, is from Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience, which is one of Blake's earliest works. Um, and it really sets up the dialectic that he is exploring between primordial innocence and experience, fallenness into the, the, the dirtiness and the experience of life. And so, I mean, even from the earliest moment, he's dealing with that back and forth between those two things and sees them as the contrary but essential states of the human person. Um, but then in his later years gets into... Uh, these works like Milton and Jerusalem being the most quintessential that are, first of all, super long, uh, epic apocalyptic works where you have these cosmic characters battling for the soul of the universe or something like that. Um, And it's highly symbolic, highly poetic, highly theological. Um, And so there's no way we're going to be able to analyze Milton or Jerusalem on the podcast. They're just far too complex. Um, but instead, I thought I'd have us read Marriage of Heaven and Hell because it gets at a lot of his themes, um, but in a short work that's more of a prose work. Um, so we both read that together. Here's a little mm-hmm. introduction. So just to set the context, Marriage of Heaven and Hell, like everything he wrote, was hand-lettered uh, with his engraving method on 27 plates along with illustrations. Um, and uh, this is from Jeffrey Keynes. Uh, this work is not so much a prophetic book like Milton or Jerusalem with a message as a treatise on philosophy designed to prepare the way for the understanding of the myths of the later books. It, it expresses very forcibly the doctrine of the necessity of contraries, just as the songs had already illustrated the contrary states of the human soul. With, without contraries, Blake insisted, there is no progression. Uh, they were necessary to human existence, and from them spring what the religious call good and evil. Good is heaven, evil is hell, but in the disconnected passages of the book, Blake tried to give point to his doctrines by the use of paradox and satire, tending to invert the conventional meanings of the terms used. Um, so, Paul, uh, did you have any initial reactions to The Marriage of Heaven and Hell? By the way, written or uh, printed, I guess, in 1793. And by printed, I mean he personally printed, like, 12 copies or something like that. Right. Yeah, just kind of cranking them out in his uh, in his home studio there. Um, I mean, it took me a little bit it, to, to kind of get back in the swing uh, with Blake, but it once I kind of clicked into what he was doing and, and kind of flashed back to my classes back in the day, I understood, oh, this is that 
the reversals, the essential reversal of um, traditional mythologies and, and approaching the meaning of those mythologies via that angle. So the first one being uh, the voice of the devil um, and just, you know, kind of the initial reaction that you're supposed to get from that, which is, oh, kind of puts you on alert whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're, you know, familiar with these myths or not, we still are uh, fully aware of what we're supposed to associate with the voice of the devil. And immediately uh, he goes in the opposite direction. Um, and it isn't necessarily that he's merely parroting, uh, I, you know, supposedly moral or good ideas. It is, uh, there is a twist in what the voice of the devil is proclaiming and saying. Um, and it's not your traditional, uh, what you would associate with, um, you know, get your own, live for yourself, live for your own truth that that Christians would you have you believe or most people would have you believe is the ideology of, of the devil. Um, it's somewhere in between and it's somewhere a lot more sophisticated. So right off the bat, speaking from that perspective kind of throws the whole experiment, the whole project into a sort of uh, kaleidoscope, uh, which is kind of the point in, in many ways in that it's, it's subverting these symbols and seeing what that subversion does to the meaning and to the interpretation. Yep. And here's a good example of what you're just saying. This is a passage. This angel who has now become a devil is my particular friend. We often read the Bible together in its infernal or diabolical sense, which the world shall have if they behave well. Uh, I also I have also the Bible of hell, which which the world shall have whether they will or no. I don't know exactly what that end part means, but that's exactly the typical thing he's doing where you have an angel who becomes a devil. I love to talk with this devil because we read the Bible together and we read it in its more perverted sense. And that's exactly what Blake is so good at, is reading things from one side and another, reading something from its perverted or forbidden angle, and then letting that forbidden side play itself out until the contradictions are so stark that there's a confrontation. Um, mm -hmm. um, so in, in that sense, he is, and I'll get into this in a minute, but with the way that Altizer reads him is he's, he is perfectly dialectical. Um, and I think that's absolutely true. Uh, I'll get to that soon. Um, but I just want to draw out a couple, couple nice things, themes that he has in Marriage of Heaven and Hell. Um, the voice of the devil tells you that all Bibles or sacred codes have been the cause of the following errors. One, that man has two real existing principles, a body and a soul. So he's setting up immediately that, um, that both in the church and, and in the Enlightenment, right, and in the deistic theology that's triumphing, triumphing at the time and the Kantianism that this is an essential error to separate the body from the soul or the body mm -hmm. from the mind. Um, mm -hmm. And then he goes on to say that, that the energy called evil is from the body. And basically what he's saying is that, well, desire, passion, um, that comes from the body. Re and then he says reason or, um, yeah, reason comes from the mind, and that's good. So he's immediately attacking this dichotomy between body and soul and attacking the idea that passion or desires 
which come from the body, are inherently evil and have to be ruled over by reason, which comes from the mind. And then he goes on to say in, that, in, that, uh, in those bullet points that energy is eternal delight. So basically what, what he's getting at in those points is that is attacking the dichotomy between body and soul. And he, mm-hmm. and he says in a point that uh, man has no body distinct from his soul. Basically that the, the soul is, or the body is an emanation of the soul. And mm-hmm. that these desires, passions, the bodily lusts are actually the essence of eternity. So mm-hmm. like this is one of the major themes that he gets at. Num- number one is knocking down that icon- dichotomy but is a celebration of the body, um, which this is a good reason to, um, to insist that he's not any sort of Gnostic, which some people sometimes accuse him of in his, la- mm-hmm. in his later works, but that he celebrates the body and he is um, adamantly against repression of desires. And he says mm-hmm. later on, <laughs> great line, sooner murder an infant in its cradle than nurse unacted desires. Amen. <laughs> and he's a precursor to Nietzsche uh, in that sense of identifying repression of desires, resentment um, that I've had to repress my desires, my bodily or soulful desires, and therefore I'm going to take it out on everybody else um, and inflict the same repression on everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it, it sets, we can bring out this contrast later of, I think about how Blake could be picked up by like the trad right today as just, you know, a bastion of the culture that is produced by the Christian West. Um, And in order to point out that (laughs) Blake is so fundamentally against the contemporary form of Christianity, which is defined by repression. Could you define the trad right? Trad right being, um, I mean, the right, um, who wants to flee from modernity by going pre-modern, going, mm. and I'll say more about this, but we've come to this crisis of modernity and the failure of the Enlightenment, I, I guess, or the contradictions of the Enlightenment, and one reaction is to go pre-modern, try and go back, right. go back to a world of innocence. Um, right. And well, that would be, sorry to keep going. No, go ahead. For the right to embrace Blake um, would be an insignifier only in, in the way that you're describing, um, yep. in the way that he's typically or, you know, uh, is misinterpreted, which is, as, as you said, a Gnostic or just simply a sort of classic, sort of uh, effusive, exuberant, being right which are which are so favorable in the minds of uh repressed uh sexually insecure men who who want to um (laughs) who want to identify with the opposite in popular culture or in uh literature yeah exactly and i was thinking about like it would be a good question of could the right pick up blake as a hero of christian imagination right that of the thing Mm. the thing that we are losing with modern liberal culture um Mm. and we can answer that in full but i I was really debating like i wonder if someone like rod dreher thinks that they like blake and from what i can tell i I can't find anything other than like you know 
him Googling quotes of like, you know, quotes against tyranny or something. So he might, right. he might qu- qu- quote Blake here and there. Sure. Um, because he has a book called <laughs> something like How Dante Will Save Your Life or something like that. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's so such tricky waters. Uh, getting into that whole world, the sort of literary right, yeah. um, which which I shamefully have rubbed shoulders with more than I would care to admit. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's a good point, Roger, Right? Yeah, I that, I would ask the same question. Who would um. Uh, he, he who shall not be named, Gregory Wolf. Uh, what would he think of Blake? What does he think of Blake? Honestly, I think he would probably, um, I, I think he would find him too, too uh, carnal. Yeah. Too, too um, sophomoric. Too like liberated and sophomoric. Right. That's often how he was portrayed in, uh, you know, in certain literary circles, is that he's not the he's there are other real poets from this time, and Blake was just sort of a, a flash in the pan psycho in many ways. God, that is yeah, mm, that's aggravating. Um, well, that's not totally true across all across the board, but that's what you know from a undergraduate perspective. That's what I could kind of glean. Right. But I, I do think I, I, I really doubt there's many conservatives who would try and pick him up for too long because it does not take long to get into the, the content of what he's saying, even though mm. it is poetic and textured, um, to realize that he's a heretic by any orthodox standards. Right. And he, that comes out immediately in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. It, it, it really comes out in everything. He's very consistent. Like, as much as you can't nail Blake down to any system, he is very consistent in dealing with certain motifs. Mm-hmm. And the main thing he's doing, like I said, is dealing with dialectics where, uh, like, I joked about C.S. Lewis, where let's say there's some, you know, there's, he, he does allegory, right? Like, you have some mm-hmm. grand allegorical tale. Mm-hmm. The Christian way or the evangelical way is to say, like, oh, okay, who's Jesus in this story, right? Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how you watch The Matrix. That's how you watch any movie. Figure out who Jesus is. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't take long, Yeah, generally. Right. The problem with Blake is you would be like, okay, this, this character is Jesus. Let's say it's Albion or Los or I don't know exactly. Well, then that character is going to become Satan halfway through. And then it's going to become uh, man, human beings, and then it's going to die, and then it's going to come back as something like human imagination. So that like every single character or uh, thematic concept in Blake goes through these violent uh, dialectical swings where it's identified with evil and then with good and goes through some sort of transformation and comes out reborn as as something completely new so that's why like you really can't fit this into a conservative context is because you have the jesus character become satan like it's it's committing all all of the more uh the most un you know forbidden heresies um mm-hmm. and so um yeah like and not only that where it usually arrives at is this um okay like just to get at some of his major themes is like 
He's identifying the fall or fallenness with repression. He's, um, and then often arrives at this idea, uh, I, as he says in Marriage of Heaven and Hell, God only acts and is in existing beings or men. And then goes on in several places to name the, quote, resurre resurrected Jesus as humanity divine or the human imagination. So mm -hmm. things that um, things that a conservative would probably just dismiss as like humanistic um, mm -hmm. and therefore heretical, uh, and they're, right. they're wrong about that. I mean, they're right that th that he's heretical, but they're wrong that it's humanistic. It's quite a bit more than that. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. Um, in what was the name of the uh, Altizer, uh, the academic who who's writing about Blake that you sent me? Is that, is that who we're reading? Altizer, right yeah. Right, okay. Um, we can edit that out. Uh, he points out in contrast to, uh, to Blake, who, who's arguing that repression is the, the seat of the fall, uh, or the, the fallout of the fall, I guess. This insane concept that I had never heard from Augustine. <laughs> um, that uh, oh, the, yeah. the human the human orgasm is the uh, the mechanism which transmits original sin or or is the fulfillment of of total depravity. Yeah, uh, unreal. I didn't, I did not know that was a something Augustine said. Mm -hmm. Not totally surprising, but he, considering how much Augustine liked to uh, oh my god yeah know, get it on. He was down to fuck like he uh -huh. he fucked so much in his early years. And then he wasn't. Yep. And then made most of his theology about the regret or, uh, yep. yeah, fantasy mm -hmm. about that. So, yeah, let's let's get into Altizer then. Like I said, um, I think it's I think it makes sense to to pick somebody as a guide into Blake, who really takes Blake seriously on all terms as um, as a poet and as a printmaker and as a theologian, right? And mm -hmm. Altizer really takes Blake seriously as a Christian. So on the one mm -hmm. hand, he doesn't kind of just dismiss of, yeah, Blake lived in England in the 18th century, so of course he had to use these terms, right? And on the other hand, he isn't saying, um, you know, he isn't trying to reclaim him as any sort of orthodox uh, Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and so, do you know anything about Altizer? Have you heard of him before? No, I haven't. Um, go ahead. I don't know much about it That's at all. That's fine. Altizer is a very rad dude. I mean, in mm. this episode, I feel like, you know, it's going to get nutty because Blake is nutty and Altizer is nutty. Um, <clears throat> Altizer wrote in the middle of the 20th century, so like in the 50s, 60s was at his height, and it's kind of of that last generation with like Paul Tillich, Paul Tillich and Boltmann of like the last theologians, last modern mm -hmm. theologians after then, like nobody really knows the name of a theologian, like contemporary theologian because they've all retreated to like pre-modern forms. Um, mm -hmm. And Altizer is famously the, a death of God theologian, like the death of God theologian. And the reason he was pretty well known at the time is because time magazine wrote ran a big piece that was like is god dead or that was on the cover 
and mm-hmm. covered Altizer and covered the radical theologians of the time. And um, like I said, like they were the, I think the last bastion of theologians who were trying to grapple with the reality of modernity post World War II um, in a genuine and radical way, um, and to to usher you know the church into uh, the modern world in in a way that was serious and could deal with the horrors of the that had already unfolded in the 21st century. 20th, 20th century. Um, um, and unfortunately, you know, nobody really, I, I think that bloodline just died out basically. Right. So, um, Altizer is a, is a really super radical dude. His, his theology, I don't think I could sum it up well, but he, he believes very seriously that, um, the uniqueness of the, the Christian message or the gospel is the death of God. And he doesn't mean that um, just in a metaphorical way. He means it like in a in an ontological way mm-hmm. that is uniquely testified to in the gospel, but more broadly, like throughout history, that basically you have a transcendent God who's wholly other, who then self empties himself uh, in the incarnation into a feeble, sinful man, right? And then that self-emptying completes in that person's death, in the death of Jesus, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that what what you have when you read the gospel seriously is the death of God. You have the transcendent other completely self-emptying and self-annihilating and killing himself. And he means that <laughs> like a very real way, way that God dies in history and is then empty or is then poured out into humanity so that um, like the the big uh, the big move is from transcendent other into um, like basically humanity uh, in a new form taking up the call of being a god unto itself or something like that basically so uh, like the way you could translate that is the way that I'm not going to do this a lot. I swear um, that Zizek does. I think Zizek has a couple of good things. Now his early his early stuff about ideology is good and entertaining, and his early stuff about his like reading of Christianity is good. Basically, there is no big other. You're free to live. That that's mm-hmm. that's Zizek's kind of big reading of the gospel, and mm-hmm. then it's also the kind of the Feuerbachian thing of God, like <clears throat> everything that was ascribed to God, needs to be taken up by human beings, by the church who literally eat the body of God and then take it into themselves. So the responsibility to to take care of each other, to improve the world, to create a livable society and a livable world is no longer the responsibility of a transcendent other. It's up to us. Like there is no big other it's up to us sorry sorry to go too far into that but do you know what i'm saying with that i got you i'm tracking okay so that that's basically altizer um and altizer is a hegelian meaning like that's kind of why he can do like actually believe all this stuff about the death of god is like he's saying it in the sense that hegel did of like you have an unfolding of absolute spirit that 
kills itself and and moves through history in a different way, basically. Um, mm-hmm. A more a simple way simpler way of saying that is more in like the postmodern. Um, well, actually, I won't get into that. So um, we're using. I'm using. A, I read a book by Altizer, and um, his big thesis is that Blake is the radical Christian prophet that the church never listened to and the one that the church needs to listen to if they're going to move forward in the world rather than retreating into the past. They need to deal with modernity, deal with postmodernity, deal with the death of God, basically, in order to survive, um, in order to be something good and productive. Um, So the intro to this book it is the thesis of this book that William Blake is the most original prophet and seer in the, in the history of Christendom, that he created a whole new form of vision embodying a modern, radical, and spiritual expression of Christianity, and that an understanding of his revolutionary work demands a new form of theological understanding. Um, any response to that? Um, I think it is really interesting and just goes to show that Blake... Blake is only taught as a poet, as far as I understand. Yeah. Um, and that's severely limiting, um, especially when, if anything, I think that um, in my experience, like I said, he's taught as a poet and is probably looked down on as a poet because he was so visionary in his poetry. And that's kind of a no-no in many people's eyes to be didactic with poetry, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, obviously leads to all, all sorts of questions about the, the value of, you know, the, the political and, you know, theological value of poetry or art. Um, and that Blake was a, was a poet who was attempting to put forth a revolutionary, uh, theological, but also political humanistic yeah. vision. Um, and he's diminished in being viewed strictly as a poet who wrote Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, um, you know, just because, and, and evaluated strictly on his rhyme schemes, uh, or, or the, the scans of his lines as compared to William Wordsworth, uh, mm-hmm. who was doing a totally different thing, right? Who, who, they just weren't even in the same category yeah. and they weren't, weren't doing the same thing. And yet he's lumped into the to the group of romantic poets, and I don't mean to knock the romantics, but I just don't really think he is a romantic poet. It's probably the main thing. Yeah. Um, right. If they were uh, probably more p- proponents of the kind of body soul divides that you just described, um, and, and right. ushered them into into the nineteenth century. Right. Um, but Blake didn't do that. Right. The and the difference there, I think, is that is the difference between dealing with the crisis of modernity. What do you do with um, this thing born in the Enlightenment that wants to reduce everything to a quantity, um, that wants to discover and know and map the whole universe? Um, do you retreat and pretend that it never happened and try and go back to some primordial innocence? Or do you basically um, take those contradictions and take that uh adversarial opposite and bring it to a mortal like mortal struggle until there is a death and move through it basically 
So he's mm-hmm. dealing with modernity um, in a way that is embracing its opposites, like completely, um, completely engaging with it and then trying to come out the other side with a new thing, right? Mm-hmm. And, like that's the dialectical bit about it. Um, and I, I think it's somewhat easier to understand like because Altizer really tries to explain him in terms of Hegel. Um, I think it's somewhat easier to understand that through like Derrida and through language. Derrida's whole thing is that any term, any concept, any piece of language that you have is constituted by its opposite. So it is fraught with contradictions. So if you're talking about life, you're also already assuming the essential, um, like the essentialness of death or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And so that everything, every essence that you try and talk about is always going to be bringing up its opposite, bringing up its contradictions, and deconstructing itself. And so to be dialectical means that you're dealing with those contradictions, you're taking them head on, and then trying to move through them rather than to deny them. Um, Mm -hmm. And so in terms of modernity, I think Blake is not a romantic in the sense that he's not just trying to pretend that this didn't happen. He's trying Mm -hmm. to face this head on and understand how how humanity can live in spite of the dire consequences of what's happening all around us. So Mm -hmm. a good way to get into that, um, um, we, I mean, we could pick so many characters or themes in Blake. One of my favorites that struck me that was like, I fucking love this guy. Like this is, this is amazing is his image of ratio or ratio. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Was that in marriage of heaven and hell or, or yeah. Mm-hmm. So ratio is basically Blake's image of absolute reason. It is the ethos of the en- enlightenment, the idea that everything can be reduced to a quantity. Um, and he was, in some sense, like definitely antagonistic to Newton and to Locke and to the rationalists, um, the empiricists, the utilitarians of his time. And all under the big banner of deism. Like Blake was an adamant uh, opponent to deism. So um, he sums all that up in the character of ratio. Um, So let me read a little bit here from Altizer. Newton, the first foremost representative to Blake of generalizing science, is a form of the Antichrist, and with the appearance of Newton and the rise of deism, Satan himself becomes manifest in his most powerful form, a form revealing that Satan's deepest epiphany does not incur until the triumph of modern science. This is this in Milton, thus in Milton, Satan becomes Newton's pan-creator. Uh, I should skip down, hold on. Okay. Uh, Even the starry heavens are now infinitely removed from man as man becomes reduced to the state of a dull round of lifeless lifeless matter. The new tyrant god, Ratio, is the most terrible abstract deity of all. Its reign is universal, encompassing all thought and experience, and the very universality of its power reduces the human individual... Blake's minute particular, who originally was not intermeasurable by anything else, 
to a state wherein the thou becomes an it, and all individuals become intermeasurable by one another. Uh, ratio, a.k.a. Google. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what I get from that. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's it weirdly prescient, um, well, ob- not weirdly, but obviously, um, in how it squares with uh, our current situation, our current experience of the human person being reduced to uh, a set of, of data, essentially, or algorithms. We're just walking algorithms that are subject to uh, the you know, the manipulation of the different tech companies that control us. Exactly. Now, mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, I don't mean to push back here, but I'm data driven. Okay, Paul, you know, okay. I'm just looking at the Do you data. Have an, I, I don't have the bandwidth to, to understand <laughs> what you're saying right now. Man. That's pretty good. That's pretty good for someone who's not working in the office. I hate, to, I hate to say that I've used it before when I have no business using that expression. No, but that, that is exactly what I thought of too. I, Picture, if you will, uh, the CEO of your company, listener, uh, they're, they're putting on for the morning their blousey powder blue dress shirt, which they took from the last CEO and passed to you. When you put on the dress shirt, you become the CEO, and they, and they give you a binder full of uh, stupid sports metaphors that relate to strategy and... Um, uh, stupid jokes and things like that and, and you're there because you have the exact medium low level of charisma and intelligence as the last CEO but you have the ruthless ability to look at a spreadsheet full of employees and reduce every single one of them to the self same unit so that this employee here who you've never met is an eight and this employee is a nine, and this one is a seven. And so mm-hmm. you can add it all up and decide that these 40 people can be laid off for the net benefit of whatever the fuck else you're considering, right? Mm-hmm. The, so what is so prophetic and prescient about what Blake is saying here, and I have thought at many times and I've never been able to s- that this is what Blake is so good at is like I've never he summed up in one word everything I've felt about my working life and and the dominant reality of of existing in the 21st century world is that every single human being every <laughs> eventually the goal the goal like every single blade of grass that grows out of the ground will be measured by the same unit right and so that you can add it all up and decide what's efficient what can be dismissed what can be elevated what can be put down um basically the quantification and the mapping of the whole universe your mm-hmm. your thoughts paul uh that doesn't sound good um yeah i mean it's i don't know what do you do with the, what do you do with that it's yeah, I have no comment. I have no comment other than dread. Yeah, I I just I first of all I'd like to say I think it's brilliant to to use that word ratio mm-hmm. because it expresses perfectly that um, like Altizer says here the minute particular which is Blake's phrase 
is not intermeasurable with any other person. So that that's the definition of an individual. So they can't com- they can't be compared to anything. They're unique. Mm-hmm. But the thrust of the enlightenment <coughs> and modernity is to reduce everything into the same unit that can be intermeasured. Um, so uh, I I just like to say that's why as I've been getting into Blake, I'm like, I love this guy. This is mm-hmm. incredible. It, mm-hmm. It's <laughs> honestly like uh, we can bring this out, but like such a stark contrast to my ex- my experience of going through Jackson Pollock, where I'm like trying to find a silver line, and um, mm-hmm. it uh, I just I really really like him. Um, mm-hmm. But so what I wanted what I wanted to bring up is basically last episode. I sort of said, maybe I said it more than you kind of put forward the thesis that um, art by itself, it can't be revolutionary, right? Mm. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're stuck within your own context. Like what you're doing is a small part of the whole mode of production. And mm-hmm. if you want to affect the world, you're going to have to affect the rest of the rest of the world outside of art. Basically. Um, I think Blake is a, pretty strong counter thesis to this mm-hmm. because of the way he is attacking the most uh, foundational elements of our modern worldview, basically. So right. taking something like ratio, um, I would ask the question again with a, you know, a slightly different outlook, like, is this revolutionary? Can art by itself be revolutionary if you're going so hard at these foundational concepts hmm well that's that's an incredibly complicated question i I think we have to you know things we've already said about blake kind of being swallowed by his moment um uh when you factor in the question of okay can this this art be revolutionary 200 years after it was made um that's a separate question, I think. But um, you know, my first answer is, uh, you know, us. Unfortunately, it doesn't sound like it was at his own time, um, and that so often seems to be the case that uh, these revolutionary artists, the most radical artists who've ever lived, have been that way because they <laughs> extricated themselves. Uh, I think I used that correctly this time. Um, from from the mode of production or the culture in which they were a part of, um, and were able to temporarily stand outside of it um, and threaten it, uh, e- even if nobody could hear them um, or see or see what they were doing. So whether or not you can be visible and be heard and have a message like this is, I think, the essential question. Um, and I, I don't know, my tendency is to think that the success itself or, or visibility itself is the thing that ultimately compromises the, the radical value of, of poetry or of art. Um, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? Um, yeah. On the, on the one hand, um, I, I am very interested in the idea that he's getting really deep underground and going straight at the roots of um, modernity and 
the regime of that we are under today of capitalism mm -hmm. basically mm -hmm. because i think what he's touching on is that um the deep roots of capitalism really do go completely into all of our assumptions that come out of the enlightenment of how we understand sorry to sound you know galaxy brained but space and time and he mm -hmm. was uh he was pretty wild with that stuff like um mm -hmm. I'm, I'm looking for a quote here uh i don't know if i'll if i'll be able to uh, pull it up but basically that i mean everything we experience today and the way that capitalism works on top of our world is based on those understandings of space and time basically the modern advent of let, let's let's just say like look at, th at it through the technological uh, innovations of like clocks and maps right the mm -hmm. breaking of time down into increments that are measured that the workday can be uh, lined up against or maps of like <laughs> literally writing down the space of the world so that it can be conquered so that the empire can expand and take over the Americas and the new world and everything mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I really want to pull up this. Okay. Um, so just, uh, just an example of like the way he's really going at the roots. Um, this is from Milton. The microscope knows not of this, nor the telescope. They alter the ratio of the spectator's organs, but leave objects untouched. For every space larger than a red globule or globule of man's blood is visionary and is created by the hammer of Los. And every space smaller than a globule of man's blood opens into eternity of which this vegetable earth is but a shadow. Mm -hmm. So I pull that up just to point out um, the beautiful and artistic way that he is reimagining space and time. Um, and as long as right. we're taking those assumptions from Newton and Locke, then you're already on the footing of um, the regime called capitalism that has conquered and is colonizing the entire world, right? Using those mm -hmm. exact units of measurement. Um, so I think that's interesting, but I think the more radical thing to get at is, um, I don't know if Blake himself would have said this, but he rests on the side of, say, like Kierkegaard um, in a reaction against the objectification of the world, basically claiming a universal reason, reason or a universal reality for the whole world that is objective and outside of any one person's mind. Um, to that, they kind of put the radical counterpoint that uh, reality is radically subjective that mm -hmm. everything is ultimately all meaning is ultimately cr ultimately created by minds and particularly by your mind right like you are creating mm -hmm. ultimate reality and that um, while all these external forces are raging and claiming the world they have no claim over um, your subjective reality and so I, I am somewhat sympathetic to the idea that while reality is being foreclosed around us, mm -hmm. it's like I'm sort of tempted to the idea that 
I would like to stake out my own ground and create a world, create a reality that is uh, defined by my terms and is not, right. not going to be encroached upon by any outside person. Sure. Well, I think, I think Blake, w- Blake would agree with you there. Um, and that's evidenced by the life that he lived and, and in, in the work that he puts forth. And that's, I think, part of the, the paradox, the dialect, dialectic that you're speaking of, which is that every material reality and the way we even view those re- material realities is being encroached upon um, by forces that uh, attempt to do us harm um, and diminish us to the state of uh, the same common ratio. Um, but Blake himself, as you said, is putting forth this vision uh, of a sort of interpretation of, of reality that is one that is uh, fed by this divine paradox. Um, and I, I picked a, when you were scrolling through your notes here, I can't remember where it is in Marriage of Heaven and Hell, um, but it's, I think it's a section with uh, Ezekiel and Isaiah, right? So yeah. he gets a chance to chat with the, the great prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and ask them, did you really talk to God up on the mountain? Um, did you did you really get a chance to him? What did he to speak to him? What did he look like? And they basically reply uh, with with essentially um, uh, no, I didn't actually talk to him. I, the presence of God is is the re- revelation that God is in everything, right? Yeah. Or that that presence is accessible to us at any time. Um, and that is probably butchering it uh, in in my own words. Um, but I, it made me think a little bit that Blake is kind of the first. Uh, he must have been getting some mushrooms from somebody, um, because that is you know a truly sort of uh, radical sort of vision of uh, ego death to some extent, or or the mm-hmm. the presence of of God in all things, a, a truly mystical vision, um, and that is what is to me so uh encouraging so uh so energizing and invigorating about reading people like this uh i get the same not quite the the same level that you get from blake um from thomas merton um mm-hmm. who who puts forth and asks similar questions about what what uh the world and the culture and, and capitalism is doing to us um, and what the antidote may be, and his solution tends to be uh, similar to Blake's, in in that you, as you said, are capable of staking out your own reality um, within a, a constantly um, dying reality. Yep. Yeah. Totally. And um, I I really like the the quote that you were referencing there. Um, he basically is like, well, hasn't it like all these prophets who say that God is talking to them, you know, isn't it basically just their subjective understanding or they just want to, uh, to make reality. So just because they, just because they want it that way, they say reality is that way. And he's basically, well, yeah, every poet does that. That's what, mm-hmm. that's what, a, right. that's what a that's poet what poets is. Understand. Right. That's what right. an artist is. That's what a poet mm-hmm. is. Yep. Yep. And then that's mm-hmm. yep. And and ultimately, what he, I think, one of his big picture ideas is that as God goes through this uh, 
dialectic crash course from being humanity to being Satan to dying ultimately comes out through the resurrection as uh, comes out as human imagination and that's exactly what he's naming is this hum human capacity to to reinterpret and to reform reality around its own values mm -hmm. and that that is that is the body of the resurrected Christ sorry to use like you know obviously we're using these terms in very heretical ways um, mm -hmm. but that's basically well, what I mean are Blake we though that I was, right. to, to from an orthodox point of view I think yes but uh, is an orthodox point of view it, a truly Christian point of view is another question that can be asked mm -hmm. um, uh, yeah absolutely and, and that I, I think that naturally lends itself to questions about what would be the effect of that state of consciousness were it to translate into a collective, mm -hmm. which is the ultimate goal of a church. Right. But the, the I think, uh, I think we can probably agree that that isn't, isn't generally, um, the outcome. Yeah. And that's, that's, what's interesting is like Blake not only means that you go through this process to come out on the other side of the apocalypse with this transformed mind and this transformed vision of reality, with this transformed imagination, like that's his big word is imagination, is mm -hmm. he also believes, or I, I think it could be read like, this happens in history, basically, that hi mm -hmm. history itself is going through these throws where people themselves, humanity as a group, will come out in this transformed state. And, mm -hmm. and Altizer certainly reads him in that way, um, that all of this is moving towards what Altizer calls apocalypse. Altizer like <laughs> loved, loved to talk about apocalypse, but you know he meant it in a radical way. And Altizer, you know, he's a, he's reading in the tradition of Hegel, Marx, Freud, Kierkegaard. Um, I don't know a few others, but like, you know, that's his wheelhouse. It's kind of the intellectual intellectual foundations of the left, I would say. And what he'll, I think he's he's writing in the fifties. He's writing in America. He probably can't be too explicit about his political stances, um, but he probably is leaning towards something what Marx meant by his dialectical synthesis of at some point, you know history is going to play out in a way that humanity becomes something new. They achieve a new organization where all these things can be, all these con contradictions can play out and be resolved in a mm -hmm. different type of human relationship. So for, mm -hmm. you know, for Marx, it's a communist society. For Altizer, it's probably something like that, but beyond. Um, and... Are you saying that in order to uh, progress through contradictions, we need to have humane conversations with people we disagree with? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. That would be that's that's uh, that's the popular. Well, it's uh, that's uh, that's a joke. That that is a joke. Right. That but that is such a a good way of that putting it because it's the difference between compromise and dialectic. Like mm -hmm. compromise is we're going to meet in the middle. And, and maybe right. that's the way that Hegel is like sometimes presented is you have thesis, antithesis, synthesis, as if it's right, right smack dab in the middle. But really mm -hmm. it's you're taking 
taking something that is your absolute opposite, something that is complete antichrist to you, facing it head on and allowing uh, a fight to the death to happen. Mm-hmm. And I guess basically, you know, it's this it's this fight where you both die, <laughs> like mm-hmm. right. And it seems like it's the absolute end until mm-hmm. you come out the other side with the synthesis, and the thing that you hated now becomes something you can embrace but it's in a new and higher form um Mm -hmm. so i i guess like to give a little form batman versus superman exactly exactly um uh i I guess just to get through some of this um i'll read just a little bit from altizer to put a bow on it because he does have a, a very interesting perspective um and he's most interested in blake because of the death of god theology that Blake has. Mm-hmm. Um, Blake was the first first Christian atheist, and his atheism was born out of a hatred of repression and a joyous response to a new and universal epi- epiphany of Jesus. But he was no atheist in the ordinary sense. He knew that the Christian God is every bit as real as the reality of repression and that the sovereignty and transcendence of God is created by the fall, and this holy other God has died to make possible the advent of the apocalypse. Um, and to the spiritual Christian the resurrection of Christ is the resurrection of the divine body of a fallen humanity the apocalyptic rebirth in a glorious and transfigured form of the primordial humanity divine which is Blake's term, humanity divine that fell to death and repression when Urizen or Satan named himself as the only God so basically um uh, yeah, well, or, or coming back as human imagination. Um, so we'll kind of leave that where it is uh, and, and move on from that. Um, that's what Altizer, I think, sees in Blake. The content of Blake is super interesting just because of the way he deals in opposites. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts coming out of that? Uh, I think it's a really exciting a really exciting jumping off point for further discussions uh to be completely honest i think this is a great a great counter counterpoint to jackson pollock um and all of the kind of uh you know sour feelings that that uh conversation kind of provokes in in the state of art and in um you know the future of art when when our great we know our great artists are compromised our quote unquote great artists um, and Blake is such a such a, a liberating force um, to the human mind and to um, the the prospect of what art can do, um, which I, I don't think we have settled on an answer by any by any means um, yet. But I think it will be he'll be a great person to talk about in you know alongside others alongside the Van Goghs and the. Um, the Mertens and, and all of these kind of different outsider figures who uh, who were able to find some way to, with their art, criticize uh, the, the hegemonic status quo. Right, yeah. And I, like I said, I think uh, Blake is a really good antithesis to Pollock. Um, in a few senses, in some way they're really similar because I think you can see in the progress of art history the movement, let, let's just say like the dialectical movement from 
objective art, like the art of the enlightenment, which has an object, which has a purpose and is getting at a universal truth, right? Mm -hmm. To a focus on a reaction against that and then a focus on the subject, right? Like meaning created by the individual. And you could, you could say that Jackson Pollock is the ultimate expression of that, right? Like he's escaping all objective universal meaning and it's just him completely in a void, like throwing mm -hmm. his exi existence against a canvas. Um, what, but the reason I think like he doesn't land as much as an artist for me personally is he's, he's such an isolated part of that dialectic He's such a small piece in like the hi in that history playing out, which is pretty much I think the received interpretation of Pollock is, yeah, he's expressing the disillusionment of modernity um, after World War One and World War Two, right? Like just the chaos of the times, and so he's kind of just a cog in this in this machine that's playing out. Um, in addition to being a cog in the machine of the, mo the whole mode of production that we talked about last time. Mm -hmm. Whereas Blake, I think, is much more putting his hands uh, or wrapping his, wrapping his arms around this whole process of the, mm -hmm. of the whole epic struggle, struggle that's playing out in history between modernity and the sense of the objective universal reality and the reaction against it with subjective truth. And Blake, mm -hmm. Blake is not just one part of that. Like he is living on both sides of that argument and like throws his whole life into the argument to the point where he can't like, he can't be successful. He, he throws himself into the machinery basically. And right. only from a distance can we understand like he was, you know, he was wrestling with this huge monster, right? Do you, do you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying with that? In, yeah, in a, I understand. In a way that I think is similar to Van Gogh, where like mm -hmm. Van Gogh has both this repulsion and retreat from the world and the progress of modernity, and at the same time an embrace and love for the world in a mm -hmm. way that you see him dealing with all the realities of life. Um, and that's that's I that's what I think like for me denotes a true artist someone who is who's willing to step up to those contradictions and take them into themselves and you mm -hmm. know refract it back to people um, right and I, I I was gonna read something that I don't I can't remember where I was looking for it but basically dealing with both the horror and the beauty of life you know that's what I'm looking for in an artist is someone who can Put their, put their hands on both of the sides of the electrical terminals and let that electricity flow through themselves until they're, you know, until they're dead, basically. Right. I, I'm, what I'm looking for is somebody who can look at a picture of Daniel Radcliffe and draw it exactly <laughs> like it appears in the picture. Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. I, I, I don't just want to look at a picture of Daniel Radcliffe. I want to look, look at a picture at a drawing that looks exactly like that picture of Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, I want to see a picture and be like, "Can you believe this is a drawing? What?" Um, well, any uh, closing closing thoughts? I'm looking forward to talking about John Berger. I need to put oh, yeah. together a lesson plan. Um, but, Throw your burgers. Uh, I know we told you to 
prepare burgers. Throw them in the freezer. They'll come back fresh as a daisy. They'll be just as yep. good. Nuke them. Right. Yep. We'll be doing burger next time. Yep. Looking forward to that. Um, yeah, stay tuned. Uh, we haven't named our followers yet, uh, our listeners. Maybe that's something we'll brainstorm uh, over the next week, too, and we'll be able to uh, disaffectionately uh, call you those call you by that name we could call them um what one of my camp counselors called me you know what that is dipshit nope worse scrotum (laughs) (laughs) what this was was not a true camp thing it was in like sixth grade where you go to the park and then the eighth graders like they they came with i don't know and they were not vetted (laughs) at all and the the, the eighth grader, he said, we're going to call you scrotum because you're as little as my scrotum. <laughs> <laughs> what a legend. Uh, oh, where is this guy? Where can I find this guy? He's fucking dead because I beat his ass to death. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know. He's probably, you're, not, you're not so he's small. Selling, you're not, he's you're selling not call, small. cars in Juliet or something now. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> All right, scrotums. Yeah, so we'll be we'll be catching you next time. Um, I'm your uh, camp counselor, Banderson. And I'm Panderson. And uh, you can tell your parents that you had a wonderful time with us and there was no funny business. Mm-hmm. And uh, until next time. Yep. Uh, we'll see you next week after school. That's right. Laters. Later. What do you think is more important? Don't think about it. Sensitivity to aesthetics or compassion? I hate that. It's a trick question. Yeah, I think they're the same thing. The same thing, same sides of a different coin.